developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. G'day and welcome to Australiana from The Spectator Australia. I'm Will Kingston. As we approach the end of 2023, many would argue the State of the Union looks dire. The 2024 presidential election will likely be fought between an incumbent president who barely knows what day of the week it is and a Republican nominee who could conceivably be in jail on election day. Foreign policy attention is stretched across conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine with an arguably greater challenge looming over the Taiwan Strait. The national debt, currently a tick under $34 trillion, is going from eye-watering to blinding. The embarrassing recent performance of university presidents before Congress highlighted the deep cultural rot in the universities. And most of the media is more interested in parroting social justice narratives than shining a spotlight on these serious issues. At the same time, America has been written off before. Geographic, demographic, economic, and military advantages remain the envy of the world. The country has a rare ability to prosper almost in spite of itself. To help me understand American grand strategy and politics as we enter a defining year in its history, I am delighted to welcome New York Times bestselling author, host of the Gorka Reality Check, and former Deputy Assistant to President Trump, Sebastian Gorka. Seb, welcome to Australiana. Uh, thank you kindly. I'm not sure I approve of you noting the New York Times bestseller. My my conservative <laughs> publisher actually, when they realised how rigged the New York Times bestseller list is and how they block conservatives, I think I just squeaked through for the second printing of my book. They actually removed New York Times bestseller. They just said <laughs> national bestseller. But but thank you. I'm excited to be. And I love the name of the podcast, Australiana. What a great name. Thank you. The Spectator's American equivalent is Americano, so we, uh, we thought we'd keep the same linguistic structure. Mm-hmm. Seb, many politics nerds like me in Australia are well aware of your story. Some may not be. How does a Brit uh, and the son of Hungarian migrants, no less, end up advising a president of the United States? Well, well that, that is you know the encapsulation of the American story. It's, um, I still get goosebumps when I think about Saturday, January the 21st, 2017. Everybody else is still hungover from the inauguration. I don't drink. My wife and I don't drink and haven't for 20 years. And uh, I decide to go to work because it may be a Saturday, but I'm a deputy assistant to the president and I get taken in an unmarked van by a, a military driver through the security to the West Executive Boulevard into the West Wing, get my pass, pick out my office. And I realize... I'm actually getting goosebumps right now. I realize um, 
I'm an immigrant, a legal immigrant with a funny accent walking around the White House the day after the inauguration. So the path has been a circuitous one. I'm incredibly blessed. So my parents as kids suffered under Nazi occupation in Hungary. They were born in Budapest. Then my father tried to resist the communist takeover in college as a young man, uh, was betrayed by the worst traitor to Western civilization during the Cold War. That's Kim Philby. He ended up arrested, tortured, and imprisoned at the age of 20, uh, got a life sentence. And then six years later, he's liberated by the freedom fighters who captured a, a Russian tank, realized one Russian tank against thousands is kind of useless. But they said, hey, it's good to break down the gate of the political prison on the outskirts of Budapest. And he was liberated. And with the 17-year-old daughter of a fellow prisoner, literally underneath a train car, they escaped to the west across a minefield into Austria, were interrogated for about six weeks in a refugee camp. He didn't know he'd been betrayed from the UK. So he was asked, back then, the, the refugee resettlement officers said, there's a handful of countries that are taking Hungarian refugees from communism. You can go to America, you can go to Canada, you can go to Australia, you can go to the UK. And he said, okay, a UK. So uh, he ended up in the UK a few years later. Uh, that's, that young woman and that man were married. I was born and raised there. My first language was Hungarian. Then I went to college, ended up in the recession of the late 90, of the early 1990s, hating my first job in the city of London doing financial intelligence. And then my dad, once the regime was crumbling in, uh, in Hungary, sorry, late 80s, what am I talking about? Yeah, late 80s, graduated in 91. So, um, man, I'm old. My dad, gets, <laughs> my dad gets rehabilitated by the, the new regime. He's going to Hungary all the time as a you know, now conservative quasi-politician. He knows I hate my job in the city. And he starts sprinkling my CV, my resume, around with his old buddies, these rehabilitated generals who've been in prison with him. And I get a phone call, 1993, sitting at my desk in the city of London in Hungarian saying, uh, do you want to work as an assistant to the deputy minister for defense in the new conservative post-communist government? I thought it was a lark. I thought they were pulling my leg. I said, yeah, sure. Wrote down the number, called them back. Yes, it was the Hungarian Ministry of Defense. So I packed my bag, got, on, got in my car, got on the ferry, drove across Europe, ended up five years in the uh, first conservative government in Hungary in the defense ministry, met my American wife in Europe, and then 9-11 hits. And through various permutations, I end up teaching counterterrorism for the Pentagon out of a German base called Garmisch-Partenkirchen, the George C. Marshall Center. Started working a lot on jihadi ideology. My first book, the, the, the bestseller, was about what Al-Qaeda what groups like ISIS believe and what it's going to take to defeat them. And then one day, just to wrap the story up, I'm a professor at the Marine Corps University in Quantico prepping for a class, and I get a call from somebody called Corey Lewandowski. No idea who this guy is. And he said, Mr. Trump is prepping for the GOP national security debate this autumn. Would you be interested in potentially assisting him? And I'm like, well, he's not exactly my style. Uh, you know, I went to British private school, debate club, philosophy and theology degree, political science PhD. But I said, 
at least he's reaching out. So I flew to New York, sat in Trump Tower, literally, you know, right across the desk from the future president. There's only three of us in the room, him, me and Corey in the corner. We have this amazing blue sky discussion about national security from literally the civil war to the utility or non-utility of nuclear weapons. Clearly, this guy's really interested. And then halfway through, classic Trump, he just stops the conversation dead, looks at Corey and goes, I like this guy, let's hire him. And so I signed an NDA. So me, me and Stormy Daniels, we both signed NDAs with the Trump organization. And, Hopefully uh, for different reasons. Well, yes, for different reasons. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I started writing in policy papers. So I wrote in policy papers. I can't go into the details because the NDA, but the big ones, you know, China, ISIS, Iran, Russia. And that was his kind of backgrounder for the debate. Ended up on the transition team and then ended up as deputy assistant to the president in the White House, deputy assistant for strategy. So I was a kind of, Bill O'Reilly called me the national security utility infielder. That was my job. <laughs> I've also heard you called Trump's pit bull as well, perhaps. By, yeah, the, the, uh, by the, the Daily Telegraph did a big thing, you know, the, the Trump's, Trump's pit bull. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they liked having a guy with my accent, I guess, near the president. We, of course, will get to Trump. But before we do, I want to go back to the start of that story because I've heard you talk about your father before and the experiences that he went through in Hungary. How does that inform your worldview today? Yeah, this is, um, I, I often get asked why I, well, you can call it, you know, pejoratively, I guess, the, 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 the pit bull aspect, or, you know, why I'm pugilistic and why, why I'm rather outspoken. If you follow my Twitter feed, you'll, you'll see I, I don't suffer fools gladly. And why I do what I do is, is very simple. You can sometimes identify moments in your life where you come to a fork and where something happens that will forever change the future trajectory of your life. And for me, it was on vacation on the beach with my parents my dad was um, a kind of, kind of guerrilla of a man. He was huge. He was on the national crew team, the rowing team, when he was arrested. He, uh, he loved to swim. He loved sports. And I'm playing on the beach with my action man and, you know, making sandcastles or whatever. I think I was like seven or eight. My dad comes out of the ocean after a swim. It's a big bear of a man. And he looks down at me. And I noticed something that I hadn't really registered before. And he had these white lines on his wrists. And, you know, he was too young to be wrinkled on his wrists. And like a, a foolish little child, a child, I said, hey, dad, what's that? Without skipping a beat, no emotion. He just looks down at me and he says, that son is where the secret police bound my wrists together behind my back with wire so they could hang me from the roof of the torture chamber. That, that's, <laughs> that's when my life changed. Because from that point onwards, I knew from the scars of my dad's body and then later the details he would write down in his, his book, Budapest Betrayed, that evil is real. The evil isn't, you know, just something in fairy stories about wizards and dragons. It, evil lurks in the heart of men and it walks the earth. And, and for me, whether it's communists, whether it's fascists, whether it's the Hamas terrorists, uh, or whether it's, I mean, I, I spent yesterday morning in Congress watching the unedited 
body cam footage of mm. what they did to those women and children on October the 7th, uh, as they laughed, as they shouted Allah Wakbar, as they're decapitating a living man on film, as they're cutting off an IDF soldier's head, as they're shooting two beautiful young girls hiding under a table. So for me, it's, it's, it's really that simple. As a great president once said, for evil to win, all is required is that good men do nothing. So for me, my career has been defined really about around beaming that light on the truth that evil is real. The postmodernist relativists, the Foucault, Derrida, the Frankfurt School are cretins, are morons. Uh, you can't negotiate with evil. You have to kill it. And I can understand then why America... And I guess the West more generally is so important to you because at its best, it should be the opposition to that evil, the opposition to that ideology. So let's start with with America and where it sits at a 50,000 foot view before we get into the nitty gritty of the politics of the day. Is America an empire in decline? Well, I never bought the um, America is an empire. There's a great debate between, I think, Neil Ferguson, Neil Ferguson. and Robert Kagan. Mm. I think it was like maybe 10 years ago. I used mm. to use it as one of my, my teaching tools for the military. You know, empires don't invade and then after a year allow the locals to choose their own president and leave, right? So, yeah, we don't put proconsuls in forever like Rome did. We, we put them in maybe for a year or two, whether it's occupied Germany after World War II, whether it's Iraq after the invasion. But we don't let Hamid Karzai, you know, take over Afghanistan. And we don't let the talent, we don't do what Biden just did and leave and you know, leave all of our hardware there. So it, um, America is an unusual, sui generis kind of actor. Why? Because we may use force, we may invade other people's countries, but... Uh, even the neocons believe that self-determination is the ultimate goal. So I'll put the empire thing in one box. Are we in decline? I think it's beyond decline. I think we're at a point where we may lose it all. I just wrote a piece today on my Substack about what the mainstream media and the intellectual grandees on the left did two weeks ago here as if some central committee had issued the talking points to the editorial board of the New York Times, the Washington Post, a full issue of The Atlantic, and a 5,000-piece article, 5,000-word article by Robert Kagan in The Post. When is the last time The Post did a 5,000-word article? And what was the talking point of every single one of them and the cable TV interviews with the likes of Liz Cheney and Applebaum the message, it was literal, like, I mean, I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but it's as if the talking points had been issued by the Politburo. If Donald Trump is democratically reelected to a second term, we will have a dictatorship in America. So, so number one, you just got to think about the, the psychological permutations of this, this insanity. A freely elected chief executive will mean the death of democracy. A freely elected executive will mean the death of a democracy, number one. So that's what these people are peddling. And then number two, in Kagan's piece, I focus on, and I did a monologue on my TV show on this. I, 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 he, he talks about Trump is Caesar. And I think, what, why is he talking about Julius Caesar? 
And then I go back to the summer of 2017, where the Shakespeare in the Park, uh, the, the, the theater company in Central Park in New York, every night would play Shakespeare's Julius Caesar with the lead role dressed to look like President Trump in a blue suit, in a red tie, and a blonde wig. And every night they would drive the daggers into this effigy of Donald Trump. And I'm thinking, why is Robert Kagan talking about Trump as Caesar 11 months before the election? And you, you can call me Trump's pit bull or you know, the pugilistic guy from the White House. But when sober, I mean, truly, she doesn't have my reputation. When sober individuals like Molly Hemingway use the phrase assassination info prep, this, she, she, wrote, she wrote a tweet to this effect, that all of these articles are preparing informationally in terms of strategic communications, American culture and the left for a potential assassination of the president. When, when Alan Dershowitz on my radio show, who's no Trump voter, says he is afraid for the security of the president. When my buddy, Dan Bongino, biggest podcast, biggest radio show in America, former Secret Service agent who protected Obama, says, yeah, uh, I'm really worried for the president. And you look at the history from Tronglos to the Lee Harvey Oswald to Sirhan Sirhan to Hinckley. We have this history of leftists killing or trying to kill conservatives. And this is an ancient history. This is what? This is James Hodgkinson. The same time as that play is going on, murdering this effigy of Trump, we have James Hodgkinson with an SKS Russian rifle go to a baseball field not far from where I'm sitting with a hit list of Republicans and open fire on this charity baseball game rehearsal, almost killing majority whip Steve Scalise. So I, you know, we're not an empire. But are we on the precipice? And, and if, if, we, if they're talking about the threat of dictatorship, sorry, guys, it's too late because we are living in a quasi-police state right now. Because when we were in the White House, we didn't order the FBI to raid Obama's house at gunpoint. We didn't arrest you know, his deputies at Reagan Airport and put them in leg shackles like they did to my colleague Peter Navarro. We didn't go to Planned Parenthood activists' homes and arrest them at gunpoint like they did with a pro-life pastor in Pennsylvania. So if the police state is this, you know, shillabeth, if it's this specter over the horizon, well, sorry, guys, it's actually arrived and it's the Biden administration that has used police state tactics in America. So, yeah, you know, we've heard this phrase again and again and again. The next election will be the most important in your lifetime. Well, guess what? This time, it's real. I've reflected a lot on the normalization of violence on the left. And you can see this not just at that high level that you've just mentioned. You can see it on the street with kind of loony protesters who are more yeah. than happy to, to punch people you know, on the side of the road. And I, I keep coming back to this concept of words as violence. And if you <laughs> accept that words are violence, then it means that you can respond to words with violence. I think that psychological shift on the left is in large part responsible for that phenomena that you're talking about. How do you reflect on this words of violence phenomena that we've seen on the left in recent years? 
Well, it's all, it's all part and parcel of the dehumanization of the other. I mean, this is, this is the, the kind of hobbled status conservatives are in with comparison to the left. Why? Well, what do we believe in? We believe in Western civilization, Judeo-Christian civilization. And more specifically, we believe in the individual. Why? Because we say our rights are a function of us being made in the image of our creator. It's not God. It's, it's a, sorry, it's not a king. It's not a government that gives us rights. We have them inherently unalienable. That's why the word creator with a capital C is in our founding document here in the United States. And, and with, our, with our attitude to government, it's usually what? get out of my life. I just want to live my life. You know, the pursuit of happiness, not happiness. We're not guaranteed happiness or equity. We are guaranteed our pursuit of happiness. Well, the left, <laughs> the left is different. Not only do they deny the existence of God, they're a collective. They're a hive mind. It's like, I mean, I'm a big sci-fi geek. There's, I, I love Star Wars and I love Star Trek, but, you know, at the end of the day, the greatest Star Trek movie is, is The Wrath of Khan. And when, when Spock dies, as he saved the Enterprise by irradiating himself, what does he do through that radiation shield with his buddy Captain Kirk? He gives this totally Marxist justification for his sacrifice. He says, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. That, I mean, this, that's the takes, you know, you've got to break some eggs to make an omelette philosophy of the left. So whether it's their collectivist mindset or whether it's this dehumanizing of the other, I mean, think about it. Joe Biden is the commander in chief with within 40 feet of his body every day, 24 seven is a large briefcase that has the nuclear launch codes in it. And he stands bathed in red light outside Independence Hall with Marines flanking him. I mean, totally. I mean, this is like something out of Argentinian junta imagery. And he says, you know, the MAGA extremists are fascists. He labels 74 million people as untermensch, as, as non-humans. And you're absolutely right. When, I mean, I've seen Antifa. When we came out of the White House for the RNC Congress, the, the violence that ensued is, you know, the guests in their tuxedos were trying to get on buses. I, I saw lunatic. I saw one Antifa guy on a bicycle. This is, this is literally outside the gate to the White House. This is 17th Street, circling a black metro cop police officer, like, like one of these animals in a cage that goes back and forth and screaming the the N-word as a white guy to the black cop because he's protecting the guests of the president. When you get to that level of wanting to burn down St. John the Episcopal Church one block from the White House in the name of social justice, let's be clear, you know, there may have been four hours of a little bit of a, you know, a Barney on Capitol Hill on January the 6th, by the way, the only people who were killed were Trump supporters, one of them a 14-year Air Force veteran called Ashby Babbitt. But we had months, months of riots in the name of social justice in which more than 40 Americans were murdered, most of them black, by the way. And for the first time in American history, when they got to the White House, 
first time ever in its since it was built, the first family had to be evacuated to the nuclear bunker under the White House. We didn't do that. We have you know four hours of a little bit of a argy bargy, and we have three billion dollars worth of damage. Forty people killed. The presidential uh, church almost burned to the ground. So you are absolutely right. There is a once you say words of violence, and the other side is peaceful, but they speak, but you don't like what they say. Well, then you can cold cock them from behind with a bicycle lock and kill them. This is mm. and, and what are we witnessing? It goes to October the seventh. If Israel has the right to exist, well, that's language I don't like. Therefore, what Hamas did is is, is what quote unquote resistance. I mean, this is shocking. The students on U.S. campuses using the word resistance to describe putting babies into ovens and decapitating their fathers while they're still living is resistance. So this, when, when you didn't, look, I, I could go on for hours because I did, you know, philosophy for, for my undergrad. When truth becomes plastic, then anything is possible. And I, I go back, you know, I'm a national security wonk. I go back to the amazing document that George Kennan wrote, the original classified long telegram that became the article, The Sources of Soviet Conduct. And this is 1946, and he's sitting in Moscow, and DC asks him, he's the deputy chief of mission, and Ambassador Harriman's on vacation. And they say, what's up with Joe? Why, why, why is Stalin suddenly not our friend anymore? And Kennan sits down, and he writes the best explication of the communist state ever written in, in 14 pages. And there's one moment that explains everything you need to know about, about communism and the new left. And he says, you need to understand the concept of truth through the Marxist lens. Truth is that which is of utility to the party to stay in power. Today, the sky can be blue if we need the sky to be described as red tomorrow, and it is good for the party, the sky will be red. This, this is how we get to the transgender lunacy of Dylan Mulvaney's A Girl because reasons. All of these things are interconnected, but they, they boil down to, to two things, the denial of truth and the need to maintain power. If you understand those two dynamics and how they intersect, you get it all. And look, these double standards that you alluded to in the judiciary amongst policing, where different rules seem to apply for different classes of society, this is not just an American trend. This is a Western trend and it all comes back to the increasing fragmentation between for want of a better term the the liberal elite class and the rest of us we saw a permutation of that with brexit we saw a permutation of that i think with the recent australian voice referendum and obviously this is is the driving theme behind your book the war for america's soul what is driving this fragmentation and I would add to this question, is that fragmentation in America now just too far gone? Or is there any chance that this country can come back together in a way that, say, it was in years gone by? So I'm going to push back on that a little bit. I, I don't think it's genetic fragmentation across society. It's a far more focused uh, issue. So literally 20 minutes before we started this, we had a, a handyman leave our home because the uh, outlet flue for our dryer was blocked, right? So it's backing up. Laundry wasn't getting dry. Everything was stinking. And he came in and I immediately, I, I, 
I have a good ear. My wife, my uh, mother spoke nine languages. I, I'm pretty good myself. And he says hello, and I say, "Where are you from?" That accent's Eastern European. And he says in his thick Eastern European accent, "I'm from Virginia." And he, he refuses to tell me. And I'm thinking, is he Russian? Is he trying to deny that he's Russian because of whatever? And for the next mm -hmm. hour, he refuses to tell me as he's with my wife in the basement, fixing the dryer. And then finally, I'm you know, on the phone with my attorney and I hear him talk about his family background with my wife. I stop my call and I say, oh, you'll tell my wife who you are, will you? Okay, turns out he's Latvian, married to a Russian, moved here 20 years ago. And he sees my Trump signs because I've got I've got the the booking mm. photograph, the mugshot from Atlanta that we put on a, a yard sign at my merch store, and it's his him that kind of steely stare, and it says Trump twenty twenty four, and he says I I see you uh, I see you're a big so he doesn't even say the name he says I see you're a big supporter, yeah yeah I, I worked for the guy and, and you know we start talking about what's happened to the nation and the economy and he says how everybody's at each other's throats. So, you know, I have a connection, national TV host, radio host, former White House advisor, with the guy who just fixed my dryer. We're not that fragmented. What mm -hmm. we are is the following. And I'll give full credit to the guy, one of the smartest guys I know, you, you need to get him on the podcast, is Rich Minniter. Rich Minniter runs his own news agency right now, a former Wall Street Journal investigative journalist wrote seminal works on terrorism, losing bin Laden, uh, mastermind on KSM. And the thing about Rich is you never have a short discussion with Rich. Rich, it's usually multiple cigars till 3 a.m. And we had dinner a few days ago and he said, what we're witnessing from Brexit to Australia, to the truckers in Canada, to Maloney in Italy, to Donald Trump, to even Modi is the following. It's not a fragmentation of society. It is a very small, unaccountable, unelected elite and the rest of us. Why can we see the phenomena of Bernie bros moving over to President Trump, right? We, we actually see, you know, Bernie Sanders guys who are against dumb wars and so forth sympathetic to President Trump, which is weird because they're very different guys, radical from Vermont and billionaire from, from Queens. It's because the dichotomous chasm isn't between left and right. We, we have to, the taxonomy of left and right is just jettison it. It is gone. What yep. we have is unaccountable elites, whether they're in Brussels or whether they're in a U.S. government. And I'll tell you the story. You know, I, I, I refuse to use the phrase deep state when I arrived in the White House, because I thought it was a little bit, you know, cranky, a little bit, you know, a foil hatty. And then I go to the NSC meetings. Now, I'm not part of the NSC. I work for the Strategic Initiatives Group. But I have all my clearances, and I get observer status, and I get invited to all the meetings on whatever it is, China policy, how to defeat ISIS, blah, 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 blah. And I sit there, and this is in the skiffs. These are in the situation rooms. These are secure facilities that are linked by a video teleconference to everywhere. You know, we've got outstations, CIA, DIA, the embassy in Kabul, you name it. And we're discussing the, the given issue for an hour, hour and a half. And I'm sitting there. This is the highest level of decision making in the most powerful nation in the world, short of the cabinet. 
You know, if, if we meet at cabinet level, that's different. But these are the guys underneath the cabinet. And I listen, and I listen, and I listen. And for an hour, for 70 minutes, for 80 minutes, none of these people, none of these bureaucrats, mention the name of the president or what he said yesterday in Warsaw about ISIS or what he said yesterday about China and trade relations. Not one whit. And after I see this, you know, five or six times, I say, so screw this. And, you know, I, did, I put up my hand and, you know, I'm the guy with a funny accent. And I say, hey, guys, do you know what the president said yesterday about ISIS? Do you know what he promised the American people about the border? And then I realized they don't give a toss. These people have been there for 20, 30 years. They're an SES or an SIS senior civil servant. They think, a president? A Republican president? I decide the future of America. That's why we have the, you know, Alexander Vindmans. That's why we have the John Kellys. That's why we have the, the Nikki Haley's and the, you know, what's the stupid mustachioed guy, the John Boltons, who worked for President Trump and now are saying he's going to be a dictator. It's really weird, Johnny and Nikki. I don't remember anyone putting a gun to your head, forcing you to be a member of the Trump administration. You didn't bitch and moan then about working for a quote-unquote dictator, but they now realize what? The most important thing about Donald Trump, nobody owns him. Just like Nigel Farage. These are successful men in the real world who love their countries. Mm. He, he's not owned by the unions. He's not owned by Big Pharma. He's not owned by the military-industrial complex. He's not owned by Big Oil. If you're not owned by somebody, you can't be controlled. And the people, I saw this, working-class Americans at rallies in Youngstown, Ohio, the, the, the Rust Belt of America. I'm in an arena with mm -hmm. thousands of people who I know were Democrats, who I know they're Parents were Democrats in the steel mills. And when President Trump comes out on stage, the, the whole arena explodes with drain the swamp, drain the swamp, USA. And I'm thinking, what's the dynamic here? And I know what the dynamic is. They look at this man and they say, he may have his own 747. He may be a self-made billionaire living in a golden tower. But just like him, if I were flying on Air Force One, I'd be eating Big Macs. They relate to this guy. He's genuine, and he doesn't give a toss for the people in power who have never had to answer for anything. That's, I'd say, not fragmentation, but a recrudescence, a, a revitalization of a, a demand for representative government in the face of unelected elitists who don't give a shit. For you if you're a working man. I think that's well put, but I want to test Trump's both ability and desire to dismantle that deep state to really yes. drain the swamp. This is the big so, question. So you, yeah. you said to the uh to the trigonometry boys, both both friends of the show, that in 2024 you want someone to come in and burn the corrupt shithole to the ground. The probably obvious response is that Trump had four years to burn the shithole to the ground, three pandemic free years. And we're still talking about this. What gives you the confidence that he can do it now when he didn't didn't do it then? Well, look, let, let's examine the diagnosis of, of the first four years. 
for the first three years without the pandemic. I said this back then, and, and I meant it. When we walked into the West Wing in January of uh, 17, in senior positions like myself, so deputy assistant or assistant to the president, senior level positions, there were less than 20 of us who were MAGA and America first. We had no bench. We, we really, and why, why would the president have a bench? He's a businessman from New York. You know, even Steve Bannon admitted using this phrase to an article for, I don't know, some scum rag like Vanity Fair or something. He said, <laughs> we had 4,000 presidential positions to fill and a month in we realized we didn't have anybody. So he says, quote, we, did, we Reince and I, did a drug deal with the GOP for the, for the bodies, which meant what? We needed people with a pulse who were breathing. We didn't have a bench. And so the rhino schlep, the Bushies and everybody else flooded into those positions. That was a conscious decision. And it was a bad decision. But what else were we going to do? We've inherited this insane National Security Council. So it was so bloated under Obama. Think of this. The, the National Security Council under Eisenhower was 25 people. That was a pretty hot time in history, the 1950s. Under Reagan, the height of the Cold War, it was 75 people. When we came in, the Obama NSC was 420 people. That's insane. And, you know, 90% of them are Democrats. So mistakes were made. But let me say this, and this isn't to make excuses. The fact that President Trump achieved what he achieved, despite active sabotage at the highest level, even the cabinet level, is stunning. ISIS destroyed, the border secured, biggest stock market in history. Now, can we do it again? Look, I'm not going to go into details, but I was with the president a couple of weeks ago in Mar-a-Lago. Mm. And the reason I wanted, I requested the, the meeting was because of this. Because wherever you stand on the conservative spectrum, I don't care what your pet rock is, whether your issue is freedom of speech, immigration, the economy, the Second Amendment, pro-life. It, it doesn't really matter what your priority is. If we don't get the personnel piece right, forget about it. I mean, Reagan was right. Personnel is policy. So I had a plan for how to deal with this in the first administration. Steve shot it down. Can we do it in the second administration? I don't, to be brutal, I don't know. But, to you know, leverage what I said to the trigonometry guys. We need somebody with you know, double-fisted flamethrowers to come into this stinking cesspit and burn the corruption to the ground. And the only person who has a chance is my former boss. I don't know if he can do it, given the, le the, you know, the, 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 the orgy and stable level of corruption we're talking about, but I damn well know it's not Nikki Haley, Chris Christie, Doug Berman, or Ron DeSantis. So the only guy who has a shot is my former boss. A couple of things to pick up on there. You mentioned Bannon. How much of the Trump ideology comes from Trump and how much of it comes from people like you and Steve Bannon? To what Great extent question. is Trump the actor and to what, to what extent is he actually the, the thinker? Great question. He is 101% the actor, but ironically or paradoxically, he can't be put into an ideological box. So this is, this is the unique thing about President Trump, that he won. Why? Not because he painted this very fine ideological picture 
of what it means to be a conservative in the 21st century and what the role is of America. No, he won because of one reason. The nation was broken and he said, I'm going to fix it. And tens of millions of people said, huh, he's a businessman. Maybe he can fix it. And most important of all, and this is why I agreed to work for him in, in, in that meeting in Trump Tower. Look, not my style. His style is very different from mine. But within about four nanoseconds, I realized two things about the man sitting across the table from me. Number one, he hates political correctness with a passion. And number two, he loves America. And I think it's that authentic, truth-telling, anti-political correctness and love of America that got him elected. It's not because he fitted into some neat taxonomy of neoliberal, neocon, paleocon, none of that. He doesn't have an ideology unless you can call loving America an ideology, because it's really that simple. He said, no more stupid wars, fix the border, fix the economy. That's not an ideology. And you know what? I like that. I've spent <laughs> 20 years studying ideology, and, and I'll, I'll give full credit to uh, my friend Robert Riley, who wrote the best book on modern Islam. And Rob made this throwaway line once in the conversation, said, we don't have ideologies if we're conservatives. We have the truth. Because an ideology is a lens through which you interpret reality. And I go, whoa, yeah, it is. And I started using that in, in my my teaching on jihadism and communism, an ideology is a framework, is a political matrix through which you interpret objective inputs. A conservative doesn't have a political overlay. I mean, look at what the word is, to conserve. To conserve what? To conserve that which we know to be true over a millennia. Family, the need for families and families as, as the building block of society isn't some political permutation of some guy in, an, in, a, in a university. It's just a fact of life. The idea that you should have a father and a mother and a man is a man and a woman is a woman and that will never change. These aren't ideological interpretations. They're the truth. So for President Trump... He doesn't have this filter of whatever taxonomy of ideology is going to fit into. It's MAGA. Do you believe in America? Do you think it's great? Okay, vote for me. Now, I said this to my buddies, you know, Chris Buskirk and others who have, you know, the American Greatness website and what is this, the, the NatCons or whatever, that in the first four years, we, we had this moment that was well exploited under Reagan where you, you win a political election. And then the, you know, the 80 pound brains sit down and they have the conferences and they say, okay, what does it mean to be a Reagan conservative? And I wanted the thinkers on our side to sit down and say, we, you know, we won, we beat Hillary. Let's do some ideological heavy thing. You know, you know let's, let's sit down and define MAGA in a little bit more detail. And we never really got around to it. A few shorter takes. What's Vivek's game plan? He's not going to win the presidency. What's he doing there? <laughs> um, look, uh, to become a political actor. 
So whether it's 2028 or whether it's in a second Trump administration, look, I've had him on, on my radio show numerous times. I've met him. He's a smart guy. He's the only guy on the platform who's taking it to the, you know, the corrupt Nicks like uh, Haley and, and Christie. And I said to him quite, you know, I think day one after he announced and he came on my show, I said, dude, you're never going to win. But I could see you as, you know, the Jared Kushner of a second Trump term, because I don't believe after what they did to him, after what the scumbags did to him and his wife, I don't think Jared's coming back. But it would be great to have a really successful tech, biotech CEO in the administration as some kind of floating innovation person like Jared was. So, you know, he look, he's a he's a big character. He's not going anywhere. He can fund his own campaign. So either he's going to run in 28 against Ron or we'll see him in the Trump cabinet. If God willing, we do our part. On Ron, you would have to say that by and large, most of, in terms of the big issues, Trump and, and DeSantis are, would be aligned. If you take a step back, at least compared to, to Democrats, Trump has been scathing of DeSantis at times. You have been scathing of DeSantis at times. I want to know why the level of hostility, I guess, is, is and the tone towards DeSantis. Even if you don't think he's the best candidate, why you taking quite a pugilistic tone towards DeSantis? Honour. It really boils down to honor, which I know, you know, if you're involved in politics, if you want a friend in D.C., you should buy a dog. But so there's a big vellum document in my living room, very large frame document. And it is my political commissioning document from the president. Very old school, written in cursive with my name, with the signature of the president and the presidential seal. And it you know names me as deputy assistant to the president. For me. I wasn't press ganged. I didn't take the king's shilling. I volunteered to do that. And that is a big deal for me. And the idea, like some other people who, who were issued that document, they trashed the man that they worked for, or they turned their back on him. You're worse than pond scum. I mean, I mean, you really are. You, when you volunteer like Bolton did, or like Haley did, or like Kelly did, or like Mattis did, you're at the higher, it's the highest honor in the world because he's elected, you're right? The people made him president. You're invited. You don't have to compete in an election. You're invited to serve the man chosen by your fellow Americans to be their leader. So for me, uh, honor is important. And to be the guy, look, Ron was 16 points behind the secretary of ag in the primaries. He, he was never going to be governor. And then President Trump endorsed him and he wins. So there, there's an honor deficit there. And he would only be successful. Why? Because as I, you know, I've used the analogy before, he's the mini-me to Donald Trump. He's only successful in Florida because he aped President Trump's policies, whether it's cultural, uh, cancel culture, business, you name it. It's because he replicated Trump. And now, now he wants to say that he's better than Trump. And you know, when I realized this man has no honor, the weekend the Alvin Bragg indictments from New York leaked, and it explodes. The Monday after the leak, but, um, Ron is giving some press conference on, I don't know, education or cyber or something. And in the Q&A, a reporter asks about the indictments against the man who made him governor. And this little nobody makes a joke about hush money for porn stars. Not once, but twice. I don't know about hush money for porn stars. What a... 
I mean, seriously? That's your comment? And then he says, I'm too busy being the governor of Florida. I'm not going to get involved. Hey, dickhead, get a map. Do you know where Mar-a-Lago is? It's in Florida. So you're not going to get involved in a political persecution of a resident of the state of which you are the governor. And the most damning of all, he says, oh, I'm not going to get involved. What's his career background before President Trump made him governor and before he ended, ended up in Congress? He was a JAG. He was a military prosecutor in the Navy. And for a former prosecutor not to have an opinion on the political prosecution of the man who was the president, is the leader of the opposition, and facilitated his rise to the governorship, uh, he has no honor. I I'm sorry. And, and that's why he deserves every lambasting he is receiving. And, and on top of that, just mechanically, his campaign will be taught at business schools across the world as the case study of the most self-destructive campaign in history for the presidency. He hired all of these influencers, who, some of whom are former friends of mine, who were utter Trumpsters. I mean, level 11 Trumpsters. And who do they attack on social media? Not Biden, not Christie, not Haley. They attack us. They attack MAGA voters. And you're thinking, hang on, you're the mini-me of MAGA for Florida. And you're attacking people like me and Trump voters? You're just stupid. That's, that's why he, he deserves every criticism that we have slung at him. I've got my promo teaser for the episode. Thank you very much. <laughs> Final question, Seb. Yeah. Predictions for 2024 in American politics. Let's take it as read that prediction number one is that you think Trump will win the presidency. What other predictions do you have for 2024? Well, I don't think. I ideally hope so. You know, God willing, if we do our part, because you know, the, the most important thing is free and fair elections. We can't have 81 million mail-out ballots. We can't have the governor of Virginia like Northam say, we will not verify signatures. Hang on. What is the only reason you're not going to verify a signature on anything? It's fraud. So, you know, the, God willing, he will win. Um, what's the other question? Your other predictions for American politics in 2024. Oh, right. I'm not going to cop out of this one. Well, I am, but, but I'm, going to give you, I'm going to give you a reason why. So number one, predictions are mugs game because nobody ever holds you to them. Nobody you know, plays back your prediction a year later and said, oh, Gorka, you said this. So, you know, I could say whatever I want. But number two, I know what our side's going to do, or at least I can give you the general shape of what we're going to do. But the, the trouble with predicting the future is I cannot channel insanity. And to predict the future, I have to channel the left. And I'm sorry, I mean, my thing is that I eat, drink, and sleep strategy. That's the thing. It's a bit nerdy, but I'm excited about strategy. From Thucydides to Trump, it's my thing. We are dealing, the, the adversary isn't strategic in any sense of the word. They're astrategic. Look, look, at the, look at the indictments. If you're a strategic actor who lives in the real world, you indict the president once, he gains popularity and more donations. You indict him a second time, he's even more popular and even more donations. If you're a strategic actor, you say, uh, maybe that's a bad idea. Not only do they indict him a third time, they indict him a fourth time and a fifth time. That's, that's non-rational. 
That, that is a strategic. You are making him stronger. And, and also, at the same time, they're really dumb. How do I know that? They think that they can neutralize his victory by getting him arrested and imprisoned. These people are evil scum, but they're also really imbecilic. I mean, they're, they're clinical morons. Why? I guess nobody in the Democrat Party, thank you, has read the Constitution. The Constitution is quite explicit as to who can be the president. You have to be in your late 30s, you have to be a natural-born citizen, and you have to be contiguously uh, resident in America for the last 14 years. doesn't say you can't be a felon. It's very interesting. It doesn't say you can't be sitting in a prison cell and then pardon yourself three minutes after the inauguration. These people are so stupid, they're using police state tactics which constitutionally have no actual effect on the likelihood of him becoming president. So, you know, I can't predict 2024 because I can't predict what the left will do, but I'll predict this for you. If you thought the last three years were insane, buckle up. I myself cannot wait. We will get you back onto the pod to chat about it in 2024. Seb, you've always been one of my favorite political commentators. Uh, we didn't even get a chance to talk about the Middle East, but I would strongly recommend to everyone your book, Defeating Jihad, which unfortunately is more relevant than ever, despite coming out in 2016. Also, The War for America's Soul is another mandatory one for the Christmas stockings linked to your Substack and social media pages are in the show notes. This has been a thrill for me, mate. Thank you very much for coming on Australiana. Cheers. Anytime. It's, I really enjoyed it. And it's always a pleasure when people ask good questions. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Australiana. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And if you really enjoyed the show, head to spectator.com.au forward slash join. Sign up for a digital subscription today and you'll get your first month absolutely free.